Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon. It's always difficult to spend time to share some important ideas. And as the blurb of the show says, we like to talk about our sages and the history of great people with Jewish history and the uh, lives of great leaders of the Jewish people throughout the centuries. And so I like to uh, find excuses to speak about different great people. I mean, in order to share some insights and some uh, historical background with you. And uh, I discovered, I only remembered when I was preparing for this talk a, a few hours ago, that it is the Yotzeit of Rashi, of Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, um, on the 29th of Tammuz. So today is the 27th of Tammuz. Um, today is Wednesday, the 27th of Tammuz. And this coming Friday is the Yotzeit of Rashi. It's the 900 and 17th Yotzeit of Rashi. And so we'll spend a little bit of time talking about who Rashi was and what his incredible, immense, almost indescribable contribution to the Jewish people and to the world was. Rashi was born in Troyes in France in the year 1040. Um, there's different discussions about, amongst the scholars exactly when he died, but most agree uh, with the opinion that he died in 1105. Uh, Rashi was in France, and really the story of Ashkenazi Jewry, most of us, the vast majority of South African Jewry, are Ashkenazim. Ashkenazim means we come from Europe, um, and the existence of Jews in Europe began around about in the 8th and 9th centuries. And the main center of the Jews being in Europe was as a result of Charlemagne, who was the, um, the leader of France. Um, Charlemagne invited the Jews in the 8th and 9th centuries to come, and he, Charlemagne was a very ambitious person. He wanted to build up the economy. He wanted to, to build up the strength of France. And he invited the Jews in order to assist him in, in order to do that, in order to uh, be involved in certain professions, to be involved in certain um, areas of economic endeavor. And so the Jews were welcomed, and they came from Babylonia. Remember, the Jews, the Jew, obviously we were in Eretz Israel. That's what, you know when Moses um, led the people through the desert and died, and jo Joshua, Yoshua, led the people into the land. And we were in the land of Israel for many, many centuries, until the destruction, about 1,300 years, until the destruction of the first temple in uh, 70 of the Common Era, within uh, part of the Jewish community was exiled and, and to Babylonia, and many returned after 70 years, and that's when the second temple was built. Um, and uh, Sorry, the first temple was before then. I'm telling you about the destruction of the second temple. The first temple was um, 500 years before that. So the Jews were, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Many Jews were exiled into Babel. 
Um, 70 years later, many Jews returned. The second temple is rebuilt and it uh, remains in existence and thriving for about four centuries. And then in 70 of the common era, the Romans uh, once again, um, uh, the, the temple is once again destroyed, both on the on the day of Tisha B'Av, um, and the Jews are now exiled. So there was always Jewish inhabitants in the land of Israel. So even after the destruction, um, at first it was there was still a large community and population. When the Byzantine Christians took over um, in uh, from the Romans, so they persecuted the Jews quite aggressively, and it became very difficult for Jews to remain in the land of Israel, to live in the land of Israel. So there still were always Jews there, but the majority of the population then moved to Babel, to Babylonia. There always was a community in Babylonia since the exile and destruction of the first temple 500 years previously. Um, so the, one of the centers that the Jews were welcomed and where Jewish life was thriving was in Babel and Babylonia. And so the, the Jews, as a result of the difficulty being in Eretz Israel, um, remember this is all many, many centuries before the beginning of Islam. Islam only starts... In the seventh century, this is this is in the first century of the common era, six hundred years before the birth of Islam. Um, so Jews are still there in Eretz Israel, but the majority of the community, the the center of the Jewish world, becomes Babel um, for a, a number of for seven to eight centuries, from the destruction of the Second Temple, which is in seventy of the common era, all the way up until about the end of the eighth century. So so during the at the beginning of the 8th century, the Jews were, uh, Babylonia had been, for those, for all, for that whole millennium, Babylonia was one of the great economic powerhouses of the world, one of the great, um, centers of civilization. It began to wane in Babel, and Jews began to look for other opportunities elsewhere, and when they were invited by Charlemagne, so, uh, not many, but, uh, a, 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 the, the original, Foundings of the Ashkenazi community in Europe was just, uh, you know, a few hundred families. And uh, one of the centers was, of course, as we mentioned, in France. And so Rashi is born just after that. He's born in 1040. So France had become the beginning. And so um, he became then the center, in, in the center, center stage of the Ashkenazi Jews in Europe. And the story of Ashkenazi Jewry is really the story of Rashi and his family. Rashi and his descendants are, um, we can, all Ashkenazi Jews can really trace our lineage back to Rashi and his descendants. So to understand Rashi, you know, to, it's, it's very difficult and, and we are humble to try and even describe a personality and a human being of such stature. His achievements are just almost beyond words what Rashi did and, and what he achieved. And uh, it's, it's, we fall short in words to describe um, the person that he was. He really, I suppose, you know, maybe a, a good way to get a feel for um, how he's viewed in the Jewish world is by sharing two legends about Rashi. You know, sometimes the legends, uh, Rabbi Wein always says that legends are important because they capture the times and the personality. And even if they're not true, we get a sense of what, how they're viewed by the Jewish people. And we get a sense of the times and uh, what they lived through. So we're going to um, break for a short ad break. When we come back, I'll share with you two very interesting legends about Rashi. 
This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about the great and incredible leader of the Jewish people, Rashi. On Friday, the 29th of Tammuz, it's the Yotzat of Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Ben Yitzchaki. The, the acronym of that is Reish Shin Yud Rashi, born in 1040, died in 1105. Um, Rashi, so let me share with you two legends that will try and capture um, the spirit and the the view that the Jewish people have of Rashi. The first one is deals with what merits did his parents have to give birth to such an incredible child, a child who would light up the world and really be a guide to Klai Yisrael for centuries and centuries. Uh, we're a thousand years, almost a thousand years after Rashi, and uh, we still bask in the glow of his light. We still can't move without him and his phenomenal co- commentaries on both the Chumash and on the Talmud. So the legend goes that Rashi's father was a jeweler and he dealt with in precious stones and he had a stone that um, it's renowned spread through his city, through um, Troyes in France. And the church nobleman wanted to use that stone for a crucifix which would be used in their church services. And they came to Rashi's father and they said to him, we believe you in possession of the stone. We would like to use it in our services. And uh, his father denied having possession of the stone, which he had. And he knew they would come and search his home, so he threw it into the river. And so when they searched his home, they couldn't, they wouldn't find it. And so the legend goes that his tremendous self-sacrifice, he would have been paid a lot of money for that stone, um, merited for him and his wife to have a child of the uh, caliber and of the greatness of Rashi. That's the one legend that's spoken about the birth of Rashi. The other legend, a very interesting legend, is that Godfrey of uh, Bologna, who was the leader of the French crusade, he led the French um, soldiers who joined the crusade to Jerusalem. And on his journey to Jerusalem, uh, he um, went through Troyes. Troyes is actually, it's not far from Paris. It's also in northern France. And um, he had heard of this great spiritual leader of the Jews, Rashi. And so he went to him and he asked him if he would succeed in his great mission to conquer the Muslims and to liberate Jerusalem. And Rashi said to him, at first you will be successful and you will be able to drive out the Muslims, but then they will come back and you will have to flee Jerusalem and you'll return to Troyes with only three horses. And Godfrey saw this as an insult and he saw it as a curse that Rashi gave him. And he said to him, if I come back and I have four horses, I'm going to kill you and I will kill all of the Jewish community. And so the legend goes that exactly as Rashi said, at first Godfrey was successful and drove out the Muslims and then the Muslims returned and he had to flee Jerusalem. And um, he was very careful to ensure that he always had four horses. So he could come to Troyes with four horses and he would kill Rashi. And the legend goes that as he entered into Troyes 
and he entered under the arch at the entrance of the city. So the keystone of the arch broke and the arch fell on one of the horses and he only came into town with three horses. So those are two legends that really paint a picture of the awe that the Jewish world has for Rashi. And, uh, almost, he was almost a miraculous figure, a, 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 um, mythical figure. He has been in the Jewish world. And the really, the great miracle of Rashi is Rashi himself and his unbelievable achievements. Now, let me just try and describe that to you. So, in those times, right, we're talking about a thousand years ago, so they didn't have uh, pens like we have today. They wrote with a quill. They made their own quill from an animal feather, and they wrote with a quill. They also made their own ink. They produced their own ink. They wrote on parchment. And Rashi, with his quill and ink and parchment, wrote a commentary on entire on the entire Tanakh, on all 24 books of the Torah. Uh, Rashi's commentary on the five books of Moses on the Chumash is studied today by almost every Jewish child and adult, um, whether you're a layman or a Talmud Chocham, a scholar, everybody uh, studies Rashi's commentary on Chumash. Rashi's commentary on the Talmud is, he wrote a commentary on the entire Talmud. And he wrote it twice. He wrote it once and then he edited it. And in fact, we, um, there are some Masechtas that we don't have Rashi's commentary because he, he wasn't finished, he didn't finish editing the, um, those last few Masechtas before he died. So he wrote the, he finished writing on the whole Talmud and he finished, um, he finished his commentary in about three quarters, even more, um, five, six of, of the Talmud. But he didn't finish editing the last, uh, the last little bit at the end. So those are the sectors that we don't have Rashi's commentary on. But if you just think about, just think about the amount of words that he wrote. Now, um, he didn't just write the words. He actually obviously thought very deeply about what he was writing. So to achieve all of that in a short life of 65 years. Now you might say, oh well, you know, he did it all day long. Um, that's not true. He didn't do it all day long. Rashi, was actually a vinter. He had a business. He had a very successful business being a vinter. Um, he, according to our sources, he was a wealthy man, Rashi. And his grandson, Rabbanitam, was an extremely wealthy man. But he, he ran a successful uh, business. It was common in those times that Jews were vinters because Jews needed wine. We need wine for many of our religious services. And we can't have wine that is not kosher. We have to make our own kosher wine. So it was a common profession for Jews to be in. Certainly in France, he, he had, as I mentioned, uh, Troyes is in northern France, in the Champagne area of France, which is uh, very rich in uh, vineyards and in wine production. So Rashi not only had a very successful business, he was also a husband, he was also a father, and he was also the rabbi of the community. He led, there was a big Jewish community that were, many, many gravitated towards him. And he was the Rav of the Kahila. Um, as a Rav of a Kahila, and myself not being anywhere near the stature and genius of Rashi, but there is a lot of communal work. There's uh, a lot of time is spent in dealing with people, in helping people, in working with people through their different challenges, 
or their joys that they're experiencing in their lives, whether it's uh, God forbid a loss or whether it's a simcha. So uh, I have no doubt that there were many nudniks that uh, knocked on Rashi's door all hours of the night for his guidance and his assistance. And being, uh, despite all of that, he still writes this amount. He wrote on the entire Tanakh and on the entire Talmud, as well as many other works that he wrote. We have another, a number of other works that Rashi wrote. So it's just mind-boggling. It is almost unfathomable that one individual could achieve so much a thousand years ago writing with his quill and his ink and his parch- parchment. So we really stand in awe of Rashi's achievements. And he, as, as I mentioned earlier, these commentaries, Rashi's commentary on, on the Chamisha Torah, on the, on the Bible, on the Old Testament, the five books of Moses is absolutely essential. You cannot learn Chumash without learning Rashi. Rashi fills in the gaps and the Chumash is written. God wrote the Torah. He dictated it to Moses in a very cryptic way. It's very, very brief. And it only tells us a very, very small portion of what's going on, both in terms of the circumstances that it describes and in terms of the halachas, of the laws that it describes. The oral tradition fills in all of these big gaps. And Rashi takes us through it just so brilliantly. It's such a work of immense genius, Rashi's commentary on Chumash, that we really can't learn Chumash today without Rashi. And not only that, but his commentary on the Talmud Every single um, page of Talmud that is learnt by the Jewish people around the world can only be learnt with Rashi. Rashi's commentary is is essential to understanding what the Gemara is saying, and all the greatest Gemara shirim in the world today are shirim that are centered around Rashi and are describing what Rashi is saying and why Rashi chose to say that and how Rashi is learning the sugya, how Rashi is learning the Talmud. So we really would be lost as a people and as a, a, a people of, of great scholarly um, achievements without the contrib- incredible mind-boggling contributions of Rashi. Um, where did Rashi learn his Torah? Where did he receive his Masorah, his tradition from? As, as observant Jews, that's very important that we receive our Masorah, we receive the system and the understanding of the Torah from an authentic place, source. So when Rashi was a young man, he traveled to Worms. And in Worms, he learned under Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakir. Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakir was a Talmud of Rabbi Gershom, the Ma'or Hagoyla. Rabbi Gershom was the great uh, light of the exile. And he many of the decrees of Rabbi Gershom uh, were... Um, he set up the framework for Ashkenazi Jewry for centuries to come, and he was the great leader of Ashkenazi Jewry, Rabbeinu Gershom. And so Rashi learned his Rebbe was a Talmud of Rabbeinu Gershom. And the legend has it that he actually met Rabbeinu Gershom um, before he passed away, if I'm not mistaken. Um, after Rav Yaakov ben Yakir passed away, so Rashi learned by another Rebbe, um, and he, that his second Rebbe was a Talmud of Rav Haigon. So it means that Rashi had a Masoira, he had the best of both Ashkenazi Jewry, Rabbeinu Gershom or Hagoyla, and of Babylonian Jewry, Rav Haigon. So he had those two traditions, um, which he took with him. He learned in Worms for 15 years, and then he returned to Troyes to be a rabbi over there. 
and uh, to set up a yeshiva over there, and he became the great leader of the Jewish community of choice. Um, when he returned after those 15 years, so he took with him notebooks. He had a number of notebooks, and he was a very organized person. And the, a, a notebook is called, in Hebrew, kuntrus. Kuntrus is like a notebook. And he developed his uh, commentary on the Talmud from those notebooks that he had. And it was just called the the notebook, the Kuntrus. Originally, his commentary was just called Kuntrus, and his grandchildren, who were the Balei Toysvus, um, they were called, they referred to their grandfather as Perusha Kuntrus, the, the, the notebook explanation. So, you know, if you learn Talmud, you learned the notebook with it, the Kuntrus, and that was Rashi, Perusha Kuntrus. Um, so any standard page of Talmud today that has been printed has the Talmud in the middle and has on the one side, the side by the margin is Rashi, and on the other side, the side that's away from the margin is Rashi's grandchildren, is the Balei Toysvus, who speak about and discuss their, their grandfather's commentary and um, the, def- the description of how he was learning the incredible sugyas. Um, so that really, in a nutshell, is um, Rashi. And uh, as we approach on Friday, his 917th Yotzeit, so we stand in awe of the unbelievable uh, contribution he made to the Jewish world and to the, the uh, society in general that he lived in. And we continue to, um, to hold on to the genius commentaries of Rashi, both in the Chumash and um, in the Talmud itself. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we were, just spoke about Rashi and his Yotzah coming up on Friday's 17th Yotzah. But since we are now in the three weeks, and we're in uh, Rashi's Yotzah, is on the 29th of Tammuz, today's the 27th of Tammuz. So we find ourselves in this period of the three weeks. And, uh, you know, we're all feeling the terrible gloom of the third wave. And unfortunately, the numbers continue to be very high, both in the Jewish community in Gauteng and throughout South Africa. And uh, we, uh, you know, it, it makes us think about life, doesn't it? It makes us think about what's important and what we have and the tremendous blessings um, of our health and having family and being able to live in this beautiful world. And so um, it's interesting that this third wave is now in the three weeks, the three weeks of mourning, um, that we observe within the Jewish people. And these three weeks, they started with the, the fast of Shiva Avsib Tammuz, the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, um, which was the Sunday before last. And they continue until Tisha B'Av, which is on Sunday the 18th of July. And um, the this period of, of mourning is the morning of the three weeks. So they resemble the mourning that a person goes through when they lose a loved one. When a person loses a loved one, they first have the week of Shiva, 
and then they have shloshim, and then there's yud beis chodesh if a person lost a parent. Um, the three weeks have the same three phases, but in the opposite direction. So we first started out with the beginning of the three weeks with the 17th of Tammuz, which was the Sunday before last. And so we were in that period where we uh, are not able to listen to music and we don't cut our hair and shave and we don't have any weddings or with the lockdown, we wouldn't anyway, but um, we wouldn't be, we don't have weddings at this time. And then we intensify our customs of mourning with the nine days. The nine days um, begin this Shabbos. This Shabbos is the first of Av. So Rashi's Yotzad on Friday is the 29th of Tammuz. And then the next day is Rosh Chodesh Av. And with Rosh Chodesh Av, so we take on a whole um, number of uh, customs of mourning, extra customs of mourning. So apart from the not listening to music, not cutting hair and shaving, not having weddings, we add to that a number of um, customs of mourning. For example, we uh, can't in the nine days make home improvements to our home or to our garden. If we've already entered into a contract with a, a non-Jew, so we don't have to stop them, it's preferable if they don't work in the nine days, but um, if it was agreed upon beforehand, so then it would be okay. But that's only uh, luxurious things, but essential things you need for essential living, um, one would be still be allowed to do in the nine days. Uh, we also don't do laundry in the nine days. Um, so we ourselves don't do laundry. And we also can't take our laundry to a non-Jewish uh, laundry or, non, or a non-Jewish dry cleaner. Um, the, the, the question arises, what do we do in South Africa? We have a very unique situation um, that many of us are privileged to have domestic workers that assist us in our homes. And that makes our lives so much easier. We're very, very fortunate to be in such a position. And so does one have to stop one's domestic worker to, uh, from doing the laundry? And usually the domestic worker would want to do the laundry because if they didn't do it now, it would build up and be a lot more difficult to then catch up um, at the end of the nine days. So uh, uh, luckily we don't have to stop our domestic worker from doing that. If they anyway going to do it on their own and they would prefer to do it now, we don't have to stop them. But we don't wear uh, new or laundered clothing during the nine days apart from on Shabbos. So the, none of these laws apply for Shabbos. But on Shabbos... Uh, but after Shabbos, so we don't we wear uh, new or freshly laundered clothing. So what we should actually do is prepare our clothing before um, Shabbos, before the nine days. In other words, wear them. Or if you haven't worn them, you can. Uh, obviously, it only applies to the outer clothing, the underwear and um, the undergarments we wear. That they can be freshly laundered. But the other garments um, should have been worn before at least a half an hour for it to be lose its freshness. Or one could stand on it with their shoes on, um, to take away their freshness, um, because we don't just, so that resembles the shloshim. A person who's going through shloshim, they don't wear new or fresh laundered clothing for the first 30 days after, um, a loved one has passed away. And so we like, in the nine days, it's like we're in shloshim. So we, that's why we don't wear freshly laundered clothing and we don't do laundry. Um, also another, we also don't make or buy new clothes. We don't buy new clothes during the nine days. Um, so we sh- if we need anything, we should think about it and purchase it before um, next week. And uh, also during the nine days, we don't eat meat or drink wine, which is quite a hard one for us South Africans. 
because you know we love our meat and uh, we have delicious meat here in South Africa. Kosher meat here is available and there's very high quality kosher meat in South Africa, which we're very fortunate to have. But during that, so we can have meat on Shabbos, as I mentioned, but we can't do so during the, the nine days and we don't drink wine either. Um, and finally, the last custom of mourning that we take on during the nine days is that we don't bathe for pleasure, which is also quite a difficult thing. Um, uh, if one is dirty, has dirt, so one can wash off the dirt, preferably with cold water. We're in winter over here in South Africa in the Southern Hemisphere, so it's a bit difficult to wash with cold water in winter. We'll get ill. Um, so one can use warmer water, but it shouldn't be as warm and as comfortable as usual. And, and only, again, washing off dirt and not washing off and not bathing for pleasure. So those are the restrictions that we take on from this coming Sunday after Shabbos, which is the nine days, and they continue until Tisha B'Av, which is next Sunday, Tisha B'Av Sunday, the 18th of July. Um, and actually, you know, unfortunately, as mentioned, we going through this horrific third wave, and the numbers are a lot higher than they were in the second wave, and we're seeing so much tragedy and so many ill people and so much suffering. It really is a sad time. Um, and therefore, it's appropriate that we observe these customs of mourning now, that the three weeks are right in the eye of the storm in this third wave. And the, the customs of mourning are framework within which to do spiritual work. They're the framework within which to, um, to work on ourselves. In everything in Judaism, all the rituals we observe in Judaism, there are a framework that make us do an action and that action is supposed to evoke a inner growth, an inner development, inner work that we're supposed to do. And it actually is a brilliant system. This, the, uh, well, it comes from God, so it is perfect, the, the system of the Torah. But it, it gives us the, the focus, it gives us the um, ability, it gives us the, the opportunity to do the inner work that we're supposed to be doing by observing the customs and the rituals. So this is now a time of mourning. We're supposed to be doing a tremendous amount of inner work in this time in the three weeks. What is the work that we're supposed to be doing in the three weeks? Well, we know that the temples were both destroyed on Tisha B'Av. And the, the Gomorrah tells us that the fact that the temples haven't been rebuilt, it's as if they were destroyed in our days. In other words, the root causes for the destruction of both the first and second temple are obviously prevalent and present in our time, otherwise the third temple would have been rebuilt. And so we need to address what those root causes were and try and work on those issues in our lives and in our own um, in our own circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. So the Gemara says the first temple was destroyed because of Shvichas Damim, Gilo Arias and Avodazara. This temple was destroyed because there was bloodshed, there was sexual immorality, and there was idol worship at the time of the first temple. And that led Hashem, they no longer had a merit to have a temple because of those things. And so, of course, those are, are, are very obvious, open transgressions. And the second temple was destroyed, says the Gomorrah, because of Sinas Chinam. Because of senseless hatred. In fact, the Gemara Yuma says, very interesting, the, uh, those that do Daf Yomi are just about to finish Masechta Yuma. And the Gemara Yuma says that the first temple where the, 
sins were galui, were revealed, so the end of the of the um, of the exile was also revealed, right? Kates hagalus megale, and the and it's the Gemara says that the second temple where the sins were not weren't galui. In other words, the Gemara says that the people were involved in Torah, and the people were involved in Gemilas Chasadim, but underneath the surface it was rotten. Underneath the surface, there was hatred in their hearts, and so they um, would have to. The since the the sin was not revealed, so to the end of the exile of the second temple is not revealed either, and that's why we find ourselves still in the darkness of the exile of the second temple, and therefore we need that's specifically what we. Of course, we have to be working on the causes of the destruction of the first temple, but. In particular, we have to all be working on the root cause of destruction of the second temple, which is sinas china, which is senseless, senseless hatred. Um, we will discuss a little bit in detail when we come back after this break exactly what the work is that we're supposed to be doing. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing the three weeks of mourning and the inner work we're supposed to be doing at this time. Um, as mentioned, everything in Judaism is about doing inner work, is about spiritual growth, is about developing ourselves. Uh, we live in a world which is a very external, um, it's a very superficial world in many ways. And that is that, um, even if we, if we're looking to develop and grow, very often the focus is on changing others and changing the world and changing society. Those things are very important, but it always begins at home. Judaism emphasizes that, that if you want to change, the change begins with you, with all of us as individuals. And there's no excuse of doing the inner work. So we could shout about what's going on outside in the society till we're blue in the face, but unless we walk the walk and talk the talk, so we are a hypocrite. The real change comes from changing ourselves, comes from within. And that's hard. That's the hardest thing in the world is to change ourselves, is to change our personalities, is to change our bad character traits, is to develop ourselves, is to develop self-control, is to live with understanding and with empathy. And that is true and real spiritual growth. So the growth at this time, the emphasis at this time, um, is that we're supposed to understand the destruction of the second temple came because there was sinaschina, because there was senseless hatred within the society. People for no reason hated each other. People could not tolerate those that were different to them and those that were not them. Um, Chinam uh, means for no reason. So just because you are not me, I have no time, I have no space, I have no tolerance. And that is as a result of us being self-centered and narcissistic. We are, that, that really is the default position of a human being. Is that we, when we babies, so we, um, we, uh, live, our instinct is that we are the only thing that counts, we're the center of the world. When we become teenagers, we reinforce that notion that nothing else is important or counts but me. And maturity and growth of a human being 
is when we notice, when we see, when we realize others, when we're able to understand that there are others and others have needs. And that's, that, that, that is the sign of greatness of a human being. Um, the great altar of Kelm, he wrote a sefer called, called Das Chochma Umusar. And in that sefer, he describes, he's got many different maimari, many different essays about noisei ba'ol im chavero. And to be able to carry the, the, the load, the yoke with another. To be able to see others. To be able to empathize with somebody else. To be able to, um, be present and be supportive and help others in their journey and in their life. That, that is the sign of greatness. And that is the first step a person needs to take in order to develop spiritually. Um, the, and the altar actually describes something so brilliant here and so important. So, and that's the opposite. That is the counter of sinas chinam. Sinas chinam is that you, we senselessly hate others. We don't tolerate others because they, they're different. We just see ourselves. We are narcissistic in our approach to life and we do not create space in our world for others and for the needs of others. The opposite of that is to be to be able to help to carry the burden of others, to be able to support others. And the Alta explains why is that so important. He explains quite brilliantly. He says because when we uh, we're supposed to be spiritual beings and we're supposed to build connections with others and connections with God. God is an abstract being. God is not physical. We don't see God. We don't interact with God in person. Um, we interact with people. We see people. People are around us. People's suffering and people's experiences and people's needs, people's anguish. And unfortunately today, um, right now in South Africa, we're seeing so much suffering and so much pain. So if we are not able to relate to and to empathize with and to sincerely um, be present and assist others in their pain and in their circumstances – and that, that's another human being who we see right in front of us. So how much more so when it comes to Hashem? How much more so when it comes to the creator of the universe, the Melech Malchem Lachim HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We, If we can't relate to and create space in our world for others, all the more so we won't be able to do that with Hashem, who is abstract, who is not uh, physically present in front of us and around us. So that's why the beginning of spiritual, and that's why Judaism says we should get married. Judaism says everybody should get married because marriage is the greatest growth for a human being. In order to have a successful marriage, in order to have shalom bias, peace in the home, so the both husband and wife need to learn about the other and need to live in a way where they are cognizant of the needs of the other and they are able to provide physically, spiritually and emotionally for the needs of the other. That's what marriage is. So if we are able to mold ourselves to be successfully live and and have a healthy relationship with another, that is a huge growth for us. That's huge development. And that's why marriage takes so much work and it's so important. And that's why we see, unfortunately, in our times, so many marriages failing because people don't want to do the work. People want to look at the other and blame the other and and not do the work themselves. So that's the work we're supposed to be doing at this time is being cognizant and aware of others and not just ourselves, not just being fooled with me and my life and my children and my world and my things, but being able to hold ourselves back and see others and live with a, an awareness 
and a sensitivity to others. And once we've learned that skill, so then we can use that to see Hashem in the world and to connect to God and build a closeness with Hashem in the world. So that is the important work we're supposed to be doing now in the three weeks. And please, God, we should all do that work. We should all be involved in that work. We should all observe the customs of mourning, which are the framework within which um, uh, facilitate us doing that work. Please, God, we should see the end of the suffering, the end of the suffering that we see around us, the end of the suffering of the Jewish people. And please, God, we should see the world at peace and the world healthy and the world filled with prosperity with the coming of Mashiach, the building of the Baish Lishi, Bimhera Amen. Thank you for, for listening and have a wonderful day.